All right. It's good to see everybody. Uh, well, today I wanted to recommend a book real quick. I just ordered this, so we'll have this in the bookstore um, probably next Sunday. I don't know. Amazon Prime, you know. Uh, this is a really good book on covenant theology by Chris Cahey, um, The Tale of Two Adams. Uh, this is really, really good. Uh, Chris Cahey is, I guess, you know, the reason why he wrote this is um, to kind of bring another uh uh, theologians, uh, covenant theology together, which is Meredith Klein that you guys hear me talk about a lot. And th- th- what this guy has done is he's just kind of distilled all of Klein's theology and sort of brought it uh, together uh, in a good book. So this, be looking for this on the on the book table. Okay, it's like we're getting more books. It's like we got to get rid of the ones we've got. They've been out there for a while. So today, as you can see up there. Um, We are looking at the exegetical foundations of the covenant of grace. I wanted to try to move on, but I don't want to move too quick. But um, I wanted to also uh, just give some passages, give a lot of text today uh, to support the doctrine of the covenant of grace. And so what I'll do is just kind of keep a running tally um, uh, of, of, of text. So what is the principal text of the covenant of grace? Genesis 3.15, right? Genesis 3.15, not 3.16, but 3.15. <laughs> uh, but Genesis 3.15 is kind of like the John 3.16 of Genesis, yes. Um, because there we have kind of the, the pillar text uh, that deals with uh, this covenant. And so there you can see Genesis 3.15. Uh, but what I wanted to focus on here is on just a few aspects of the covenant of grace. And one of the things is that we'll notice is that the promise of the covenant of grace, as we looked at the parties of the covenant of grace, was, which was, you know, when we think about the parties involved, you know, it is between God and uh, the elect, I guess is the, the best way that we can put it. God and the elect, the special seed of the woman who are connected to the singular seed uh, the Messiah. But but uh, let me just read this, because I think this is important as well. It says that the promise is for God's elect children, although Israel would come to benefit from God's promise in a typological sense. Only the true spiritual seed of the woman who are united to the messianic seed will experience God's redemptive grace through faith. So we understand what I mean by that, is that when you think about Israel, because if you look at the Old Testament, I mean, the whole Old Testament is dominated by the nation of Israel. Right, but we understand that the nation of Israel is operating, if you would, on a on a certain level, which this is kind of what we could call the typological level, um, uh, uh, which deals with typology, and this is where the nation of Israel uh, is sort of found. Uh, right, this is where Israel kind of finds itself is on this typological level. But on a redemptive, or what we could even call a spiritual level, right? This is what we could call, I've heard different ways of saying this. I like the word Christian, Israel, uh, something like that. I like the word Christian, Israel. At this point, dispensationalists are hyperventilating. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, Because, let me write that a little bit better. You can't see that in case you want to write it down a little bit later. Um, 
This is a term that comes from Greg Nichols' uh, Baptist uh, covenant theology, which is really good. Uh, but Christian Israel. And so what we're saying is that the promise that God makes concerning the seed is going to ultimately be distilled down the line as you go through the genealogies of the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, By the time you get to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, especially with the Tower of Babel, the authors of Scripture stop following the seed of the serpent and no longer has any importance, in a sense, to the author. So you stopped following the line of Cain, for example, and Lamech, and people like that. And the the seed of the serpent just sort of drops out uh, because what becomes really important is the seed of the woman, right? The righteous seed of the woman. And so then we follow those genealogies, uh, and that, that is really what takes kind of focus here. Uh, so what we find out is that as we think about the, the promise and the covenant of grace, um, even think about uh, is, uh, uh, Abraham, right? As Abraham is given a promise of fecundity, and what does that word mean, if you remember? Um, kind of a funny word, but kind of summarizes the idea, right? The, 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 the word fecundity uh, just means a great, uh, you know, a great uh, uh, people or a great community, right? That that, that uh, a lot of uh, people are going to de- be descended from uh, Abraham, and in this community, this fecundity, these descendants that are going to stream out of Abraham, you're going to have two types of descendants. You're going to have those that are of a physical uh, a descent right, physical children of Abraham, and they're going to follow the typological level of the covenant of grace, right? But we are also going to encounter the spiritual seed of Abraham, and they will follow maybe both, you know, because they're, they're physical descendants, but more importantly, they follow the spiritual level of the covenant of grace, right? That's, that's kind of where they're going to be at. So that's, that's why this is important, but um, if you get back to this, uh, what you'll notice is that we want to focus on what Scripture talks about in terms of victory over the serpent, because that was part of the covenant of grace. Remember, you know, the, the seed of the woman, he will bruise you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. And so what is that really indicative of? Well, that's indicative of, of some sort of triumph over the serpent through some sort of suffering that is incurred by the seed of the woman. Um, and, and therefore, I give you all these passages. So I said, you know, notice that salvation is couched in the language of overcoming the serpent. That is the essence of the promise. The victory language is repeated and uh, repeatedly attributed to the new covenant believers in Christ and to Christ himself. So, a lot of texts today. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. God is going to crush Satan under your feet. If you look at any technical commentary on that passage, they always go back to the protology of Genesis. They always go back to the covenant of grace, in other words, to show where that is found. Another passage, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, right? Uh, Christ renders Satan powerless, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so it's like Christ himself defeats the devil, renders him powerless, but it's for the benefit of those who were enslaved to the power of death or to the fear of death. Interesting phrase, isn't it? The fear of death. They were enslaved to the fear of death all their lives. Like, what does that mean? Well, I just think it means something like, you know, um, 
death has this sort of you know, uh, uh, this sort of dominion over us and that we don't know how to break ourselves from the shackles of the power of death, right? So we're under the tyranny of death our whole life, and that tyranny is broken in Christ. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses, uh, I think it's 55, 56, right? Where it says, oh, death was your sting, grave was your victory, right? That is all broken in and through Christ. And so what we learn from Hebrews is that Satan uses the power, the persuasion, the fear of death to hold people captive to their sin, right? Uh, really interesting. First John chapter 2, verse 13, you see this over and over. Uh, but, you know, John says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Same thing when he says, um, he, says it, he says it again, you know, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. What about First John chapter 3, verse 8? The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And see, that, destroy, that, that victory over the devil is all part of the gospel. It's all part of Christ's redemptive work, his person and his work. Now, here's a couple things. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, very strong. This is a very strong passage uh, because it takes us right back to Genesis, right? It says, to him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, now, maybe not so clear of how. Turn there, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, because this is a... Uh, I mean, as enigmatic as this passage is, um, cer- certain things about this text are clear. You know, it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty difficult chapter of Revelation to interpret, first of all. Because the imagery is so deep, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. I mean, right there, it's like, where does your brain go? (laughs) You know, a sign appeared in heaven, a woman that was clothed with the sun. Okay, so right away in our mind, we have all this imagery going on in our head, you know? There's a woman, she's got the sun that's clothing her. I mean, what does that even look like? Of course, that imagery is not meant to be taken literal, but it is symbolic of something, uh, something uh, um, in a sense, uh, a reality greater than itself, right? Um, but the emphasis here is, again, on overcoming. So if you look at verse 9, it focuses on that. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan. So right there, you know, you have, uh, notice the word dragon, and serpent, essentially synonymous, uh, those terms are found in the Old Testament with imagery like Leviathan, right? The, the, the sea monsters of the deep that God creates in Genesis chapter 1 and then found repeatedly throughout the book of Job and in Isaiah and different places. That serpent language, the tatanim, is uh, the word for dragon that's used eventually symbolically of Satan in the Old Testament. So here those words are used in, in, in very close proximity to each other, and, it, and they're defined, right? This dragon, this serpent of old, is no one less than the devil, Satan, right? It says, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before God day and night. And watch this. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their life 
even when faced with death. Now, very unfortunate translation. Um, very unfortunate translation because, and I have this queued up here, if you just look at um, the, Hebrew, the, the Greek text where it says, where's it at? Verse 11? Verse 11 here, you know, it says, see, uh, there's a little footnote here on my Bible that says to death. That's right, because actually the Greek words are right here uh, in verse 11, and it's this prepositional phrase right there, akrithanatu, which basically means unto death. They did not love their lives unto death. Um, and it's so amazing because it says, kai uk agapeson teg. Sukane auton. They did not love their souls, akri thanatu unto death. Or, you know, uh, it's, there's no there's no word for faced, like facing death or facing the prospect of death. The Greek text just doesn't allow for that. It's just saying they 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 didn't love their life even if it means martyrdom, right? And and I think the ESV actually does a better job of of. Uh, Look at this little game I'm playing with my computer here. Uh, there's the same thing, but I have to blow it up like ginormous size just to see. And I have also, how do you use this thing? How do people even make these things? Like, it's just unbelievable to me. Uh, 11, right? <laughs> this is kind of interesting. Blowing it up this big, using it like it's kind of like driving without a steering wheel. <laughs> just kind of like, oh, <laughs> hope this turns out all right. That's 13. Okay, so we'll back up. Uh, is that funny, Trish, or what? They did not love their lives even unto death. A little bit better, right? Still not as brutal as the Greek text, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, and let me know if you guys need to see any texts like that. Well, that's not what we were doing. Here we are, back to this. So, yeah, so they didn't, they didn't love their lives even in face with death, and so even if it meant martyrdom, uh, they were sort of comforted by the fact that they were going to overcome and defeat the serpent. God was going to reward them. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth uh, and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Wow, what an incredible verse, right? What an incredible word. Knowing that he has a, a short time. I think he understands that Redemption itself uh, anticipates the final defeat of Satan. And so he knows. He's a better theologian than, than most people. You know, he knows the Bible, we could say, inside and out. You know, he was able to quote it and try to twist it. Remember when he was dealing with Jesus? Uh, look at this verse. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Um, why do I have this verse up? You know, this is a controversial text, right? I mean, Revelation chapter 20 is the whole millennial debate, right? But why do you think I have this text up? I mean, it says there that those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hand. It says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh all I'm emphasizing here is the reality that they came to they came to life and they reigned, okay. And so, just the the imagery there that even though they were martyred by the beast, right? It's like what John is saying is that even those who are martyred by the beast, um, they still conquer, 
right? They still will overcome. They will, in fact, reign with Christ. So this is a huge debate is, you know, what is the nature of this they came to life? You know, some would say, well, this is a, this is a reference to the resurrection. Some would say, no, this is regeneration, you know, things like that. It, it could be, let me just turn there in my own Bible, but it could be that what John is trying to say here is that, is that this, is, this is the martyrs uh, going into eternal life uh, in heaven. Okay, that's, that's a very possible position. And if that position is true, that kind of lends more weight towards the amillennial uh, interpretation of this text. Um, and then it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So what this would be saying then is that the reign of these people who, who, who although they were martyred, they came back to life. They're reigning with Christ in heaven. And then the scene transports us back to earth. Uh, and, and, and showing how that even those who are still alive on this earth um, will not come to experience that heavenly life until uh, that interim reign of the heavenly and the people of God in heaven with Christ until that's over. That's a very possible position. I mean, the exegesis, I think, allows for all of that. You know, and then, the, of course, the premillennialists would say, no, absolutely not. You know, this, there's no indication here that the rain that is depicted there is only in heaven, right? This is some sort of earthly rain, right? So that's their interpretation of that. Now, could it be that Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 12 are parallels? If those are parallel one to another... Right. Well, then that would also indicate something of an amillennial interpretation. Uh, so anyway, these are these are kind of the arguments. I know you guys want to just stay on that. <laughs> I know how it is. I, I want to, too. I, I'd like to know the truth, too. <laughs> you know, there's another text. If you could look at Revelation, just since we're on the on the, you know, one of the most controversial issues in the church. Uh, Revelation chapter seven is a very interesting parallel to Revelation 20 and, and 21 uh, that also lends towards an amillennial uh, interpretation because if you look at Revelation chapter 7 at the very end there, I don't know, it just seems like it follows the same pattern as Revelation 20 and 21. Uh, you guys there? For, you know, it says, uh, oh man. All right, verse 13. I guess we can go up to verse 13. It says, but you know, one of the elders answered me uh, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that could be a parallel to Revelation 20, verse 4. They came to life and reigned with him. It could be the same idea. And it says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. You see, that would be a heavenly session for them as well. And they serve him day and night in his temple. Wow, isn't that interesting? In his temple or his tabernacle. Is that what it says? Sanctuary. Yeah, that's right. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Watch this now. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. Key, key word thirst, right? Nor will the sun beat on them any, uh, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that remind you of? He 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now turn to Revelation chapter 21. Right? It seems as if Revelation chapter 21 is going to reiterate these same exact ideas. Revelation chapter 21, beginning 1 through 4, speaks about the tabernacle of God, right? which is exactly what Revelation 7 just got done talking about. So you have a reference. Let's see if we can do the parallel. Chapter 7. Is this, is this profitable or should I move on? spoken that's that's definitely an amillennialism coming out right there (laughs) i know so revelation 7 or 21 so you know we have like in both you have the presence of the tabernacle right in both tabernacle you have the presence of what's the next one you have the presence of um sort of let's say the um what if you go to verse if you go to chapter if you're still in 21 look at verse 4 ah Right, he says he will wipe away tears. Right, wipe away tears. Both chapters. Also, what else? Spring. Is there a spring in both? Spring of water. Yes. Look at verse twenty, chapter twenty-one. Look at verse five and following and he who sits on the throne said i am making all things new and he said write these things they're faithful and true then he said to me it is done i'm the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end i will give to the one who thirsts same idea right from the spring of the water of life and so you have the water of life Uh, water of life in both passages So you have all these parallels between those two chapters. And if that's the case, then Revelation chapter 7 is telling us that we go from the second coming to the new heavens and the new earth. And if that's the case, then what Revelation would be teaching is you go from the second coming to the new earth. Right? Yes, ma'am? I definitely didn't want to stop you because this is super interesting. No, go ahead. understanding what this has to do with the covenant of grace. Well, it's just showing how, well, we kind of, di- we did digress. Oh, so yeah, well, yes, ma'am. Okay. It's a rabbit trail. That's why I'm saying, is it valuable? Because I know, yeah, well, we went from, we went from the idea of overcoming the serpent, right? Okay. That overcoming the serpent is kind of code in the Bible for, you know, redemption, for, you know, uh, t- having a part in the covenant of grace. And that's why the New Testament picks up all this language of overcoming the serpent, Right, And then in, when you get to Revelation, those who overcome the serpent are also those who are martyred. Mm-hmm. So it would seem as if the serpent overcame them. There even, there's even a verse, don't ask me where it's at, where it says that the, the serpent will overcome the saints. So accounting for the martyrdom right, that will transpire during the tribulation. Right? So, so saints will be martyred, but the good news of Revelation, the book of Revelation is, even the martyrs, will come to life and reign with Christ. You see how comforting that would be to a church who's experiencing martyrdom, right? Is what happened to Landon? What happened to Chris? Where are they? Well, they, they're going to come to life and they're going to reign with Christ, you see, for a thousand years. Now, one thing that's really interesting, just mark it down and see if you can find any remnant of this anywhere else. I found it in one resource, and that's by Michael Kruger, Michael Kruger, excellent, excellent theologian and, and apologist, uh, but in his uh, recent um, book, uh, the two-volume set on biblical theology, 
that just came out on his uh, in in the section on Revelation, the contributor, whoever he is, points out that the thousand years in Jewish tradition was often associated with the ideal reign of Adam. That Adam. That Adam, Eden, you're not going to settle down. Out. She's excommunicated. She was, she's not in the covenant. (laughs) Yeah. So that's interesting because how long did Adam live? Less than a thousand years. And it was because of the fall that he didn't reach to a thousand years, right? So could it be that Jewish tradition is onto something that something like, you know, like Adam should have, you know, a thousand years would have been symbolic of his ideal heavenly state. And could that have any influence on the book of Revelation, you know, seeped in Jewish apocalypticism, the book of Revelation is, you know. Anyway, just jot it down. I mean, I thought it was an interesting. Yeah, I think I wrote that in the book. Wow. <laughs> Because I thought it was interesting. It was like, I never heard that. Okay, so um, as you can see, Genesis chapter 6, going back to, you know, uh, we won't go back into this stuff, but going back to just in terms of the exegesis of the covenant of grace, we also find just the grace principle, I think, in Genesis in, uh, with uh, Noah, which that's next, by the way. We're going to look at the, at the covenant with Noah. Uh, that's a big one. But look what it says. It says, you know, it says, I will blot out man that I've created from the face of the land, man and the animals, the creeping things, the birds in the sky, everything. I'm sorry that I made them. Wow, what a, I mean, what a profound anthropomorphic statement that is by God to tell us how he feels about sin, that he is sorry that he made man. Wow. And then it says, but Noah, so what's the key? What's the way out of the darkness and the despair? Verse 7. This verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? And so we see that Noah is now uh, saved by God's favor or his grace. Uh, that's another way of putting it, you know. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, this favor is in keeping with God's previous promise to Adam and Eve, who also could be said to find favor in God's sight, not on the basis of anything they'd done, but solely on the basis of God's will to save and advance his redemptive purpose, just as Adam and Eve would advance God's redemptive purpose through their seed, both physical and spiritual, so too Noah would advance God's redemptive work through being the progenitor, in other words, he begins a whole new people, progenitor of God's people in a new world. Um, yeah, turn to a little preview here. Turn to first second Peter. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three for a very interesting little exegetical detail here. Right? And while you're doing that, I will pull this guy up again. And Let's see here. Is that as big as it could be? It is not. So if you look at um, 2 Peter chapter 3, look at the way that Peter speaks of this. Look at verse uh, verse 5, I guess we can say, right? It says, 
for when they maintain this, it keep, you know, people are saying, where is God? Why is he taking so long? You know, where's the end? You know, where's this coming? You know, it's like not happening. So it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, out of, out of water by water, through which, watch this now, the world at that time was destroyed. That's a really interesting phrase when he says, you know, the world, uh, the world at that time. Uh, really, the um, you could almost say this phrase here, uh, the world that then was, or something like that, right? So it's almost like for Peter, it's like the wor- human history is to be broken up into two compartments, right? There's a pre-Diluvian world, and then there's a post-Diluvian world. Diluvian meaning the flood, right? There's sort of a pre-flood world and a post-flood world, and that's the way that Peter sees the whole makeup of human history. You were part of the old world, and now you're part of the new world. Now, notice for Peter, because, look at what he says later, verse 7, he says, oh, let me read it again. It says, through which the world at that time, or maybe more literal, the world that then was, he says, being destroyed and flooded with water, by, uh, but by his word, the present heavens and earth. That's really interesting. He says the present heavens and earth, or because he uses the word noon, which just means now. So it's, it's, it's almost like he says, but the heavens and the earth that now is, right? So the earth that was then, and now the earth that is now. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So for Peter, it's like two ages, right? That's what Noah represents, right? And so that's, this is where theologians get the idea that when Noah and his family exited the ark, okay, turn there with me, Genesis chapter... Nah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah, nine... Well, exited, so chapter 9, right? So it's almost like when they exited the world, uh, when they exited the ark, it's almost like God was symbolizing a new creation. So it's like Noah becomes a second Adam, and out of him comes a new humanity, a new creation, because what happened to the old humanity? God wiped it out. So God needs to make, needs to, you know, he needs to commission a new progenitor of a new humanity in a new world. And that's exactly what Noah is. That's why you find language reminiscent to Genesis 2, right? And 3, right? And and 1, 2, and 3, really, protology. Because look what he says here. Oh, boy. Verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, oh, hold on one second. I just got to point this out. What time we got? We got time. I mean, verse 22, chapter 8, verse 22. Look at that phrase right there. I need to look into more of that Hebrew of that phrase. But look at what he says there, right? Just the first line. While the earth remains. That's interesting because what is the, and the net Bible, the N-E-T, which is edited by Daniel Wallace, The Net Bible actually says, as long as the earth continues to exist. So what's the implication? One day, one day the earth will not continue to exist, right? 
so I, we know what the thrust of it is. As long as the earth continues to exist, well, you know, sea time, harvest, cold, heat, right, the seasons, and we're going to get into the whole common grace covenant of Noah. But, but it's almost like what he's saying is that there will be a time where the earth will not exist or continue or remain. So just a little, because there's a debate here on what is the nature of a new heavens and a new earth. Is it just sort of a renovated heavens and earth that are present that we presently live in. So in other words, is the new heavens and the new earth just simply going to be a renovation of this heaven and this earth? I would say that's probably the predominant reform position. Or will it be a completely, in other words, the old heaven and old earth will not only, in a sense, be sort of distilled down somehow, but it will be fully annihilated, completely completely wiped out of existence, right? So I don't know. I don't know if this you know, supports... You know, that view. I just thought that was an interesting verse. It never really dawned on me what, what he's saying here. Uh, but look at verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, Now God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, What? Where have we heard that before? <laughs> right, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, what, 27, 28? Right? He says, And fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be in every beast and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground. See this whole language of dominion all over again. Every moving thing is alive shall be food for you. I will give it to you as I gave you green plants. So it's almost like, you know, just as God had originally given everybody a vegetarian diet, now he's going to allow us to go get a ribeye after church. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Some people, I think some decisions were just made in here. <laughs> he says, surely I will require your lifeblood. He says, from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every... Man's brother, I will require the life of man. So in other words, it's like, you know, this is, he sets up a whole new justice system. Um, he says, whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed. Watch this. For in the image of God, he made them. So again, image of God language. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So right there and then, boom, God is creating a whole new commission, a whole new uh, creation mandate. Um, and this is so that he can accomplish his his purpose, right? Um, just amazing, just amazing. Any questions, comments? Um, but we see what what God has done here is He has saved, He has saved, um, you know, Noah by His grace. Um, he's the progenitor of a new world, and uh, that becomes very important as you're following along in the seed theology of the Bible, because we go, in a sense, from what? We go from Noah to what? To, uh, no, 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 not Seth. Uh, we go to Shem, and Shem leads us to, that's right, Abram. See? That's why it's important that Genesis is written the way it's written so that we can see how the seed of the woman is coming to fruition. And then by the time we get to Abraham, then we start really understanding how the covenant of grace is really going to be fleshed out in redemptive history. It's not just going to be that, you know, Eve is just going to give birth, you know, to an Abel or to a Cain, right? And boom, the Messiah comes. No, but it's going to be fleshed out as Abraham is even promised three things, right? It's going to only happen as God fulfills his word to Abraham for three things. Land, people, and kingdom. 
slash king, right? And this is found where? Uh, I want to say Genesis. Oh, man. You guys look it up. Is it Genesis 15? No, no, no. I think it's Genesis 17. You guys look it up for me. Seven or eight? Let's just go with six. Why not? Until you prove me wrong. <laughs> six. There you go. Yeah, Genesis six, seventeen six. That's right. It says, "I will make exceeding. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you." So, kings from Abraham, the kingdom. That's right. So God promises him land, people, and kingdom, and that is how the promise to Adam or the promise of Adam and Eve and the covenant of grace will be fulfilled. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking when you spell out all that, I'm yeah. curious how um, the promise to Abraham of the kingdom of the king relates to the Davidic covenant. And almost like it's a, it's a, a step towards fulfillment and it's a like a, a already not yet fulfillment in that David was established as king over Israel where mm-hmm. you have the typical kingdom of God yep. in that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's in Luke chapter 1 where Zacharias connects the two, I think. Right? Uh, Luke chapter 1, as he's thinking about the fulfillment Verse 67, Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And he says in verse 69, after he's saying the Lord had visited us, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. What a magnificent verse. And has raised up a horn of salvation to us in the house of David. See? And he says for all all those who hate us, watch this, to show mercy toward our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. So exactly right, Jonathan. So Abraham fulfills this, right? Prepares us for the Davidic covenant, you know? And it's all interconnected. That's the thing about covenant theology. Everything is connected. So maybe we would do well to look at this again. You guys tell me what you think. Right, so it's kind of like what what I'm trying I'm trying to say here. You know, I'm supposed to be, you know, trying to make it easy, but you know what I mean. It's like everything is 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 just coming in sequential order, but there are all these connections that are being made. You know what I mean? As um, uh, Genesis three three fifteen is going to be reintroduced here to Abraham, and this same you know this same sort of covenantal trajectory goes from Abraham until it reaches David, and so that's why you have. You know, from Abraham, this connection, and it's coming back into the Davidic covenant. You see, just like Jonathan is saying, something like that. And it, I've gotten some feedback on this chart. A couple of you guys mentioned that I need to show somehow how the new covenant of, with Christ and the church, how this is not only fulfills the covenant of grace and works, the covenant of grace, a covenant of works is fulfilled by Christ, because there's no real line showing that. Well, how much space do you have on one page? I don't know. You know, how many connections can you show, you know? Um, 
that's right. Okay, so back to the issue at hand. No, that's not the issue at hand. There we go. Okay, so uh, this is a good quote by uh, Keel and Brown in Sacred, Sacred Bond, which we have out on the table. The Hebrew word for offspring, seed, dominates the book of Genesis. It appears 37 times, chapters 12 to 50. That is how predominant the seed theology is in the book of Genesis. It indicates God's faithfulness to his promise to form a community called out of the world and the offspring of the devil, and from the offspring of the devil, right? This community can be traced throughout redemptive history and into the new covenant, not by bloodline, uh, which is exactly what John chapter 1 says, right? John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, right? It says, um, those who receive them and give them authority to become children of God who were born not of the will of man, not of blood, right? Not of the will of the flesh, but of God, Right, So that's exactly what he's saying here. But by those who believe in God's promise, as Paul says to the Gentile Christians, now listen to this verse, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I just had a thought, and tell me what you think, but I just had a thought in that. He doesn't say the opposite way around, right? He doesn't, he doesn't even say like, you know, if you are Abraham's true descendants, then you are Christ's, right? But it's the opposite. If you are Christ, then go back to Abraham, thousands of years, <laughs> right? And you are Abraham's offspring. So what is he saying is that, you know, as we get to, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, what was originally covenanted to Abraham the most important thing is a spiritual seed. A spiritual descendants is what God is telling Abraham, right? Um, yeah, it's just really remarkable. Um, yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, all the promises that God made were fulfilled, right? I think even Nehemiah, or, uh, I have to look into that, but yeah, I think Nehemiah chapter 9 talks about uh, that all the words that God promised you, he fulfilled, right? So all the land, everything was fulfilled by God. There was a temporal, typological fulfillment of all of the physical, temporal things that God promised. People... Land and kings, all of that was fulfilled by God. He kept his promise, right? But on a spiritual plane, you know, that's what, that's what still needed to be fulfilled. So it's like, yeah, it's like this is why, you know, uh, Christian Israel, nation of Israel, um, so like Nichols would say, would call this to, to distinguish spiritual from physical, he would call them Hebrew Israel versus Christian Israel. Because you could be a Hebrew. If you go to Israel with us, we're going to be around a lot of Hebrews, and you'll meet them, and even though they're Jewish, they hate God. So just because they're Jewish does not mean that they partake of the spiritual promises of God, right? Of course. Of 
course. I mean, it's like so much of the Bible is dedicated to proving that. The whole book of Romans is dedicated to, is God the God of the Jews only or the God of the Gentiles, Paul asks. No, of the Gentiles also, right? And then he quotes all these Old Testament passages to show us that God is going to have children of the living God, sons of the living God, Hosea chapter 1, verse 11, right? Out of those who were not his children, meaning they were not Jewish. They're pagan Gentile dogs, but because of God's sovereign grace, they are now the children of the living God. That's us, you know? So, yeah. So, um, let me just give you some more verses. So, really, when we think about the covenant of grace, just to finish up, the covenant of grace is really found everywhere in the Bible. Because what the covenant of grace is giving us is a grace principle for salvation. How does God save people? By his grace. How is God going to redeem people? How is God going to cause them to triumph over the serpent, to obtain paradise, to be forgiven, to have their sins atoned for, to be in the Messiah? All of that is always and only by grace. And so you have all these texts. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 16. That is a... Yeah, that's a passage we don't have time for. I know you guys want me to slow down, some of you, but we'll never get through all this. It's like we'll be in covenant theology for two years. I mean, amen. See, I knew it. I knew it. I knew Jonathan, amen. So what? Pastors are supposed to, like, you know, keep things going in the church. Okay. Are How, there perspectives yeah. that would take issue with the covenant of grace? Oh, yes. So yes, of course. They, they See, that's the thing is that dispensationalist New Covenant theologians would reject the covenant of grace, right? So um, so they would say, no, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is not a covenant, right? It is a promise, right? But it is not a covenant, right? So, okay, so we can squabble o- over that. Um, I think there's plenty of reasons to consider it as a covenant, right? Because God makes an oath. He, he takes an oath. He takes When God vows to do something... That is not some sloppy promise. Oh, I think I have an idea. That is God taking a solemn oath upon himself to do something. And when God swears, that is, that is covenant language because we know that in the, in the, especially the Old Testament, the language of oath, promise, swearing, that's synonymous with the, 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 the actual word covenant, berit. Right? There's many Old Testament passages where covenant and oath are synonymous. They're even used in the same verses right next to each other to show us that these are all covenantal terms. So like a dispensationalist would say, no, it's not a, it's not a covenant, and it doesn't control the rest of Scripture, right? Um, whereas we would say, it's, no, it does. And Genesis 3.15 really informs everything. You know, like Gerhardus Voss says, you know, Genesis 3.15 is the seed of Romans, the book of Romans, if you would, is the full-blooded, the full-budded flower. You see what I'm saying? It's like, so everything that you're learning in the book of Romans about justification by faith and, you know, all of those things really belong to the seed of the covenant of grace. <laughs> it all begins there. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. The only problem is, is that... Um, they would also reject the covenant of works. So they would reject the notion that Adam could merit eternal life, mm-hmm. right? And that, that has effect on how you view uh, the second Adam. 
you know. Uh, my understanding is that John Piper rejects the covenant of works, and he doesn't want to accept the idea that God, that, that man could earn anything from God, uh, that it must be bestowed by grace. And so as uh, even uh, Chris Cahey will point out in his book, if the first Adam could not earn everlasting life for us, neither can the second Adam, Right? So it must be. So heaven, you know, this is what covenant theology teaches us, is that heaven has to be earned. (laughs) You know? And if Adam couldn't earn it, we certainly can't earn it. Christ has to earn it for us. So, yeah, there's there's areas where I think there's more agreement than than people would like to, to say. You know what I mean? But what the covenant of grace is teaching us, um, that dispensationalists definitely do not want to uh, recognize is, in a sense, right, the church began in the Garden of Eden, right? The church began with the first believers <laughs> because we're all part of the same elect group, people of God. You see what I'm saying? And then when you see the covenant of grace working itself into the Abrahamic covenant, right, then the dispensationalists would like to interpret everything so literal in terms of Israel, Right, that their focus is Israel fulfilling everything. Right, the problem with that is that what dispensationalists are doing is they're arguing, and it really sadly come full circle, and then we'll close. (laughs) They're arguing Revelation chapter twenty, a literal millennium, is the way that physical, literal Israel will fulfill everything. You see, the problem with that theology for me is that the New Testament is kind of, it becomes the typological level, whereas the millennial level becomes the reality. So it's almost like the New Testament is still the type, and we're waiting for the fulfillment still. You see what I'm saying? Whereas we would say, no. You know, everything in the New Testament tells us that that, that we are the fulfillment of the shadows, that we have the fullness of, of you know of, of of Christ that the fullness of the times is fulfilled now in Christ. We're not waiting, right, for the kingdom. We're not waiting for the land to be you know fulfilled in the Jewish people, for the people of God to be fully realized as you know, let's say, twelve literal tribes of Israel going back to Jewish descent, and that we're waiting for a literal physical kingdom where David himself will reign. Uh, that's what Schofield taught. That's what the dispensationalists taught. That's what many dispensationalists are now correcting. So now we have, you know, categories like uh, progressive dispensationalism. They're getting away from some of those absurd notions that we're literally waiting for David to get on the throne again. You know what I mean? And literally rule over the 12 tribes of Israel again. You know what I'm saying? And maybe even have sacrifices in the millennium again where we're going to be re-sacrificing animals. And they would say, well, because those sacrifices are symbolic and they're not, they're not, you know, they're not for atonement. They're just going to be like commemorating, you know, the work of redemption. Well, where does the Bible say that? That's not literal. You know, that's not a literal interpretation of the Bible either. You know what I'm saying? So these are difficult arguments, you know, and just, but here's what I want to say. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 is an expression of the covenant of grace. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. I mean, when I read this, I'm like, covenant of works. I mean, covenant of grace, covenant of grace. And just like the garden, it's not antinomian. 
It's not a result of works that anyone will boast, but here's the thing. We're, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the grace of God that was promised in the covenant of grace has never been and will never be antinomian. It always must lead to good works. Okay? That's all the time that we have. Look at this. We didn't even, look at this. We didn't even get into any of this. <laughs> no, next week is the covenant of Noah. We gotta, we gotta make some progress. <laughs>